Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick and James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before launching into our spoiler-filled discussion of Matthew Vaughan's 2010 film, Kick-Ass. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seb and James to explain a comic book concept... As a movie fan, I just don't understand. Seb, James, I've been reading about the Justice League Dark this week. Now, that's not just Batman and Superman with the lights turned off, right? <laughs> no, it, it's not a Zack Snyder directed. Uh, oh, hey <laughs> Whenever I see the name Justice League Dark, it just makes me think that it's like a, a brand of box of chocolates. <laughs> it's just one of the most ridiculous names for anything. Um,. The history's kind of... Co- it's actually a relatively recent thing as a concept. Um, but basically, to sort of give you as brief as I can, and I know these aren't always super brief, overview of the history of it all, from about... Well, we talked on the Blade episode about how in the late 70s you had this kind of growing tradition of horror and supernatural comics again at, at DC and Marvel. And at DC, um, this particularly took root in the early 80s. And I've just realised I've made a brilliant pun by saying took root because it took root with Swamp Thing, particularly. Um, And the run on Swamp Thing by Alan Moore. Um, And that basically spawned a whole subgenre in DC of supernatural characters in the DC universe. Uh, And John Constantine, Hellblazer, uh, first appeared in Swamp Thing as well. And you had various other characters um, who started to appear over that period. So, But by the time you got to the mid to late 80s, those characters were being used in comics that were quite, uh, you know, sort of uh, mature and adult. Some some more mature than others, but, you know, it, it, it was kind of more of an adult audience were reading them. And um, mainly inspired by the success of uh, The Sandman, DC created the Vertigo imprint, um, to basically put all of the kind of grown-up supernatural characters into that. Um, now, obviously, around about the same time, they had also had the uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, which was a reboot with a continuity. So this was a useful point at which they could, even though the Crisis was a little bit earlier, um, they could have the excuse to shunt these characters actually out of the DC universe. So you have this weird situation with Sandman, actually, where Sandman started before Vertigo began. Um, and early on, in early issues of Sandman, it is very 
um, clearly connected to the DC universe. Um, the Martian Manhunter from Justice League appears in one of the early issues. Right. Um, but by the time Sandman finished, Vertigo had been established. And the rule with Vertigo was basically these characters aren't in the DC universe. So John Constantine, who had always been a part of the DC universe and who had hung out with superheroes, was now in completely in his own universe that had no superheroes in it and <laughs> you know had, had nothing to do with the rest of the DC universe. So that was the status quo kind of pretty much throughout the 90s and 2000s. But then one of the things that DC did when they did the Flashpoint New 52 reboot in 2011 was to get rid of Vertigo completely. Um, One of the side effects of this was that Hellblazer finally finished with its 300th issue and like his story was actually brought to an end. Not like a completely definitive end, but the comic finished and and had a proper ending. Um, And one of the things that DC decided they wanted to do was to bring back all of these supernatural characters and have them be in the DC universe, including a new, younger version of John Constantine, who was a little bit more like he had been in the Swamp Thing days, rather than the grizzled 50-year-old. Because in Hellblazer, Constantine had always been allowed to age in real time, which doesn't really happen in comics, as you know. But by the time Hellblazer ended, Constantine was in his kind of late 40s, early 50s. so they, as part of the New 52 relaunch, one of the new titles that they launched was called Justice League Dark and is essentially a team book featuring various supernatural characters, including John Constantine um, and Zatanna, who is a, a magician character who, um, who I really like, um, and various others. Basically, any character who was quite popular in a Vertigo comic in the late 80s who could reasonably fit into a superhero book, they, they put into Justice League Dark. Um, I only read a few issues of it. It was it had it's had some quite good writers on it, um, Jeff Lemire and J M Dematis, and it was reasonably enjoyable. It just I wasn't really interested in those characters not being in their own, you know, kind of Vertigo books. It's sort of yeah. So I would imagine if they did a film, I can't see it tying into the other DC films. I think it would still have to be its own thing, and I think calling it Justice League Dark would be utterly ridiculous. But I think. I think the idea of doing a film of those characters as a team could be a good idea. Well, let's segue straight into the the news piece that relates to that this, this week then, because since about, I think, 2012, Guillermo del Toro was working on a Justice League Dark film, and that kind of hung around in the ether for quite a while, but obviously within that the period... DC's kind of plans, long-term plans, completely changed. Um, Del Toro kind of has taken a step back, but had developed it for quite a while and had handed in a version of the script. Um, And so this project still exists. And the latest rumour this week is that it might actually be going ahead and happening with um, Evil Dead director Fede Alvarez, uh, remake director, obviously. Um, Although Sam Raimi doing this would be cool. Um, And then the directing duo of Aaron Cachales and Navot Papachado, who apparently directed um, a film called Big Bad Wolves. They are both rumoured to be in being considered for the directing job in this film, which suggests that it's actually moving ahead. Um, there are casting rumours that Colin Farrell would be playing John Constantine, Ron Perlman playing Swamp Thing, Ewan McGregor for Jason Blood slash The Demon, Monica Bellucci as Madame Xanadu, and um, Ben Mendelsohn as the villain Anton Arcane. Um, <laughs> so, does I mean... I, I I guess that could exist in the in the same universe as the as the main one for DC. I can see them setting it in the same universe as the other stuff. I mean, if they really want to do the Marvel thing, um, I do I do kind of think 
if you're going to do this and Guillermo del Toro's not doing it, then I'm not sure what the point of doing it is. It's like it's just so tailor made for him to do that. If he's not going to do it, it might just end up feeling like a poor imitation of a Guillermo del Toro film. To be fair, not not having a particular reason to make a film hasn't stopped them making Suicide Squad. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. I just wonder if it's. I mean, it's not obviously going to be exactly the same subject matter as Suicide Squad, but given that they're already doing Suicide Squad, I don't. I think this is too similar to it in terms of being, you know, yeah. an unconventional group of characters in a in a superhero trope framework. It's yeah, just it's kind of a, a super team of C listers to pad yeah. out their universe quickly. Like, it, and it, it would seems to serve the same function as Suicide Squad. And if they're going to do that, why not go ahead and do Justice League International and then at least you might get something light-hearted out of it. <laughs> Maybe that's light-hearted, next, that's the problem. Like, DC doesn't want a light-hearted movie. Well, that would yeah, shatter exactly. their brand. Um, uh, and what, 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 what do you think then? If I mean, if those rumours are true, I mean, I wasn't a big fan of the Evil Dead remake, uh, but I thought Fede Alvarez um, at, at least seemed like he had a handle and a clear vision with that movie. I don't know the other two guys. Um, and then I don't know, like cast wise. I mean, that, that, those could be completely fan cast because it's just it's just rumors. But any movie with Colin Farrell, Ron Perlman, Ewan McGregor, Monica Bellucci, and Ben Mendelsohn would have my money opening night. Yeah, wouldn't have any of its own money left though. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way they can afford all of those in a fucking Justice League Dark movie. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Colin Farrell has been being linked with being a possible John Constantine for about as long as the internet has been talking about <laughs> comic book movies. Um, you know, if he if he can do a Scouse accent, then I'm all for it. <laughs> okay, uh, well, we'll move on now. Um, and our second piece of news isn't really news. And um, we're probably going to talk about more about this show more in the next couple of weeks once we've actually watched it all. But Jessica Jones is online. Uh, full disclosure, we are recording this on Sunday night, so um, we we haven't watched all of it yet, although I'm, so, I'm sure some of you had got it finished by Friday night. Um, but we're, we're, we're at various different stages throughout the season uh, between us. So I thought if we just kind of discuss between us, guys, our, our initial impressions and whether it's lived up to expectation and what we like, what we don't like. Um, James, yeah. you've you've probably got the furthest out of all of us. What, what, yeah, how are you I'm, finding it so far? I'm six episodes in. Uh, I would say it has pretty much lived up to my expectations in that it's a slightly worse version of the comic uh, in sort of terms of bringing the characters to life. I think this is something I'll save for when we you know do our Jessica Jones special or whatever. But I think. I think Kristen Ritter's Jessica Jones is a different character from the comics version. And yeah, that, absolutely. That, that is preventing me from enjoying it maybe as much as some other people. Um, I think it's worse than Daredevil in terms of its construction and writing, but it's also better than most of the TV series, so, you know, mm. we're splitting hairs. I would I would argue that it's, from, from what I've seen, and I'm four episodes in, so far it seems... Um, it for me, it's not hitting the heights that some of Daredevil was, um, yeah. but I think it's I think it's probably 
more consistent at the moment. There's no kind of Foggy and Karen go off to investigate something that <laughs> as an, that our audience and hero have already investigated and and you know found out. Um, I do like the more the the more kind of there has been a couple of two or three cases of the week, which is something that. Um, I was crying out for Daredevil to do, um, and this seems to be doing finding a good balance of telling little stories and little cases in an episode while also um, yeah, yeah. doing think, the overarching story stuff. I think the main thing it's getting me excited for is uh, the Luke Cage series, because Mike Coulter is amazing. Yeah, really he, good. Like, he's so perfect as Luke Cage. Really good. Um, I, I've enjoyed every second he's been on the screen so far. Um, and I also I, I'm I'm really enjoying the like I I'm finding it tense and I'm finding every I'm, fi- I'm finding there's just a paranoia over everything that's going on. Oh there yeah, is, yeah. Uh, they've nailed that definitely. Yeah, um, Seb, you you haven't seen quite as much yet. Uh, no. what, what are your initial impressions? We'll let you well, off. You've got a young baby. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I sort of well, and yeah, basically, my wife didn't really like it from the first twenty minutes, so um, we stopped. And I will catch up, but I've I've only got like the first twenty odd minutes into it so far. <laughs> so you know, I should stress that any comments that I make are, are completely lacking in wider context. The problem I have with it so far, there's, there's basically two main problems that I've had with it, which is one that, that like Daredevil, the pacing is a real problem for me. Um, I know that, uh, you know, obviously there are people who get on with the kind of style of these shows and the way that they're paced because they sit there and, and you know, watch them through, but um, I, already at this early stage I'm finding it a bit of a slog pace wise I look at that first 20 minutes and how much has happened in that first 20 minutes compared with how much happened in the first 20 minutes of Supergirl or The Flash you know? and I know they're completely different shows aiming in a completely different audience in a completely different way but um, yeah it's, just, it, it, it's already feeling like it's dragging for me I would and love a happy thing... medium between the pace of <laughs> Jessica Jones and The Flash and oh sorry and yeah. Supergirl those, those two shows wow um, <laughs> one is sprinting um, one is casually strolling down the street looking over its shoulder every five seconds <laughs> I mean I, I was already aware that it this wasn't really going to translate the things that I liked the most about Alias because the things that I like most about Alias are the character of Jessica and it was already clear that they were going for a different take and that's fine um, you know, it, it, you kind of, you know, could sort of put your own stamp on it. But the other thing, the other thing that I love in Alias is the stories, and most of the stories that Alias does can't be done in this TV series. Like, I love the first arc of Alias, the the Captain America conspiracy storyline. I think just you know really sets out well what that comic is doing and how the character fits in the Marvel universe. And obviously, that is not a story that this comic can this this tv show can do and then i look through all the other storylines and you know the probably the best story arc in the whole thing is the one that's about the the girl who's, who claims that she's a mutant and goes missing you can't do mutants in this tv show so you can't yeah. do that one either you can't do the stuff with J. jonah jameson because he's a spider-man character and it's just and i think the problem with adapting alias is you look at daredevil and there's a lot of daredevil and there are a lot of different interpretations, and some are more popular than others, and the kind of Miller Bendis, and that's obviously what the the TV show went for. But things like Mark Wade's run, and even the Mark Stephen Johnson movie, have shown us that you can do. There's lots of Daredevil to draw on, and there's lots of different things you can do, and that means that you can get away with doing something that is new and your own take. And there's a lot about the the Netflix um, Daredevil and the character and the way that he develops as Daredevil that is its own thing, and that's fine. Alias is like a 28-issue series that is a very particular set of stories, 
and this TV show doesn't adapt them. So it's kind of disappointing to me. But I did always kind of know that that was going to be the case. My other problem with it, really, is that it's really kind of a bit pervy. I mean, I don't know how much that develops after the opening. Um, I, I I've would, watched, but I, it's I have, like I found it just um, like re- refreshingly um, adult, uh, and I, and, and just, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say pervy. I would say it's it's sexy. It's it's got it's got some hot sex scenes, and they feel real for all the characters. And um, I just I, I and refreshing for characters was, that would act in such a way. Um, I do seeing actually, but something that the something that the comic never did was to go. Here's Jessica Jones. Look how great she looks in her pants. Whereas the TV show, it yeah, does that I was going to say the away. TV show does it in the first episode. But I think to be fair, it's it doesn't happen again. Yeah, well, and also least, I think it's if been... it does happen, it happens as much to Luke Cage. As yes, well. I was going to say very <laughs> equal opportunity. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, does it with, yeah, without like, spoiling too much? Does it have that scene in it? Not not specifically, but there is. I think there's, there's a, there is a, there is a definite nod to that moment. I was yes. going to say, I said something. I said in my den of geek uh, viewing notes is that they show you a bit more, and in doing that, leave less room for interpretation. So, <laughs> in by being slightly more graphic, they actually made it a lot less. Yeah. Uh, potentially graphic, if you get my meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, but um, I, yeah, we we are planning to get together to discuss Jessica Jones further, and we don't want to do it before we've uh, we've all properly seen the whole thing, and um, uh, we we don't want to do it before most of you have finished watching the whole thing. So um, just uh, just stay tuned for that. But uh, yeah, hopefully it won't be. I too think long it might it can... might be a bit more upbeat than that conversation suggested. As well. <laughs> yes, I it think does, it, it sorry, does I... improve. And I, I don't want to. I don't want to give the impression that there wasn't anything that I liked about it. <laughs> In actually, fairness, uh, Rita, I, I I really liked her and her performance and the character in those opening 20 minutes and in fairness Seb uh, I think my least favourite 20 minutes of the show so far were the first 20 I, I kind of watched them with a, fur- <laughs> well, a furrowed up. brow going yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm, <laughs> I'm not sure about this show yet and then yeah. by the end of the first episode I was like okay yeah you've you've arced that really well um, I'm on board mm-hmm. fair enough Okay, uh, we'll move on to our final piece of news now, uh, and this relates to DC's Wonder Woman. Uh, we're going to see Wonder Woman first in Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. Um, but uh, after that, we're going to see her in her own solo film. Before we see her in a two-part Wonder, uh, before we see her in a two-part Justice League movie, and then possibly in sequels. DC, you've got it all planned out. But um, DC, after um, a little bit of a leak that I mentioned on last week's mini-sode, uh, released a uh, press uh, press release giving lots of details on the film because it's now filming. Uh, Patty Jenkins is directing and um, the press release has confirmed that um, as well as Gal Gadot in the lead role, uh, Chris Pine is starring, which we knew about. Um, uh, Robin Wright has joined the cast. Danny Houston... David Thewlis, Ewan Bremner, uh, Saeed Tagmawi, who was the guy who made the leak, uh, Elena Anaya, the uh, Spanish actress who was in The Skin I Live In, and Lucy Davis, her off of The Office and Shaun of the Dead. Um, uh, We also know that um, it is being photographed by uh, Matthew Jensen, who did Chronicle, Fantastic Four, um, and... um, uh, various other people in, involved behind the scenes. You can look at the press release. You don't really hear about all that now. Um, <laughs> there was also one more still release of the film with um, 
Gal Gadot looking like Wonder Woman. And um, yeah, this this film is happening. It's all going ahead. That cast sounds pretty exciting to me. Uh, we didn't get our Eva Green and Sean Bean, unfortunately, but it sounds like we got Robin Wright and Danny Houston instead. You've got to imagine that um, Robin Wright is playing uh, her mother. Uh, oh no! Oh no! Because there was that. Oh, because there was um, Cersei, the villain, wasn't yeah. there? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, I, th- I would have assumed from seeing Robin Wright's name that she'd be her mother, but yeah, and presumably Danny Houston is Ares. Yeah, yeah. Which, if he is, or I mean, it could be David Thewlis. <laughs> Who <but>. knows? <laughs> and it looks like <laughs> this is a period film from uh, the picture that uh, Saeed Tagmari tweeted or Instagrammed last week, uh, which is, I think, what we were expecting that this might be like a nineties, nineteen forties flashback to the the wider world discovering. Um, discovering Wonder Woman for the first time. There's also a rumour out there that Chris Pine is playing Steve Trevor here, but that he'll also be playing like a descendant of Steve Trevor in future <laughs> oh, movies. God. I don't know if yeah. that's true. That would that's that would be concerning. Um, but can we, actually, can can we just take a moment to appreciate how good it was that um, the MCU didn't do that and just immediately have um, Haley Atwell uh, there. How did I forget Hayley Atwell's name? <laughs> Let me start. Because she's off Twitter, so you know, um, it's gone deleted. <laughs> um, didn't immediately have Hayley Atwell just playing Sharon Carter in the present day. But no, I mean this. This, I mean, I like that cast. I, it's it's an interesting looking cast, apart from Chris Pine, who. But Steve Trevor isn't interesting, and neither is Chris Pine. So, I hope Chris Pine gets um, to be funny. Well, like Chris Pine is, Chris Pine was very funny in Into the Woods, and I quite liked his little cameo in Wet Hot American Summer. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm slightly worried. Although, wouldn't it be nice for Chris Pine just to be in this film as bland male love interest in the way that so many women have been formed to play, have been cast to play bland love interest to male heroes along the way? I'd almost, I'd almost kind of like that he is as bland as humanly possible. <laughs> but I do worry that the film might shift things more to his perspective. But you know, if it's about the world encountering Wonder Woman for the first time, and like he's this, he seems to be dressed like he, well, he's, he's he's a pilot, isn't he? And it's like the, you know, dressed in that old flying gear in that photo. Mm. And it's like if we follow him as the character that maybe like crashes on Paradise Island and discovers the Amazonian society and stuff, it it could actually take focus away from the fact that it's supposed to be a film about Wonder Woman. Yeah, hopefully not. Um, I, I, the period idea is interesting. I, I would like it if it turns out that, you know, because Man of, it's weird, because Man of Steel never gave any impression that there were any other there are or had been any other superheroes and then all of a sudden you've got Batman versus Superman establishing that Batman has been around for years and years. So if you're doing that anyway, then I quite like the idea that Wonder Woman could have been around since the 1940s hmm. and is you know, still around in the present day. Um, particularly if it means that she was basically the first superhero in this universe. I think that would be a nice twist. I unless don't unless she was do, just... But... Unless she kept herself to the Amazon before this point. Mm. Um, you know, I, would, I imagine whenever we see Aquaman, he is going to have just been in the sea before then. <laughs> <laughs> Dripping wet. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to this film. Um, I'm intrigued to see a Wonder Woman movie and I think a lot of I think I think there's I think there's hopefully a very big audience for it like I, it's 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 nice that it's actually happening it's it's like given the conversations we've had about Captain Marvel in the past couple of months it's refreshing that Wonder Woman is in front of cameras and looks like it will be the yeah. next DC yeah. movie after Suicide Squad and um 
and Batman vs Superman. I mean, I'm I'm fully behind the idea of it, I, but one thing I would say is you're probably looking forward to it because you've never read a Wonder Woman comic. <laughs> yeah. But... Like the, the problem with Wonder Woman is that as a character, she doesn't have a lot going for her besides recognition. Like, there's... Unless you're doing I... a sort of high Greek take, I don't think there's a lot to her. I don't think that's necessarily a problem for this film, though, because I think that makes her a blank slate on which... If you if someone has come up with an interesting take, then go for it and don't worry about if it's different from how she's been in the comics. Yeah, I mean, I guess from from for most people, I mean, because Wonder Woman has that cultural cachet in that people recognise her from the old Linda Carter version, well, um, except and 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 that still remains fairly iconic um but no one is coming into it with really much baggage apart from that, and I don't think anyone's going to be coming in saying. Oh, um, I can't believe they didn't stay true to that thing from the from the Wonder Woman TV show. I think it's just, hey, it's a Wonder Woman movie. That's that's interesting. Well, it, it, it's like the Hulk. People only recognise the Hulk from the TV show. There had never been any good Hulk comics, and you know that worked. Oh, fuck off! <laughs> <laughs> I was just massively trolling James. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> Um, okay, well, um, I think I think on that note, we'll we'll draw our new section to a close, um, and we'll move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Kickass. But before we dive in, let's listen to the original trailer for the movie. I always wondered why nobody did it before me. I mean, all those comic books, movies, TV shows—you'd think that one eccentric loner would have made himself a costume. I mean, is everyday life really so exciting? A schools and offices so thrilling that I'm the only one who ever fantasized about this? Come on, be honest with yourself. At some point in our lives, we all wanted to be a superhero. That's not me, by the way. That's some Armenian guy with a history of mental health problems. That's me. How come nobody's ever tried to be a superhero? Dude, if anybody did it in real life, they'd get their ass kicked. They'd be dead in, like, a day. Comic books had it wrong. You don't need a power to be a superhero. Oh, yeah. Didn't see that, did you? You. I'm kick ass. So you want to play? Okay, so that was the trailer for Kick Ass. Um, we'll dive straight into our spoiler filled discussion now. Um, and guys, so I've watched Kick Ass quite a few times over the years, and I, I assume, like me, both of you saw this for the first time in the cinemas um i i only read the comic this week for the first time um mark miller's like first collection of kick-ass the the first graphic novel um 
had you read it before you saw the film or have you read it since or like because I know you you both have kind of like complicated relationships with Mark Millar right oh, no, we, yeah. I think we I think we both bought Kick-Ass like monthly as it was coming out didn't we well I don't, right, I don't okay. think it ended up all coming out monthly but because um, Mark Millar says very proudly that it all outsold Spider-Man I it mean, was huge, right? That's such that, a that's, that's such a, a very nebulous claim to make. Claim to make. Yeah. <laughs> Which Spider-Man did it out, sir? <laughs> <laughs> when and for how long? Yeah, yeah. He very much models himself on Stan Lee, um, with the exception that he has, and this is this is the biggest thing that you can say to Mark Miller's mm. credit. He has a dogged insistence on making sure that artists are as equally compensated. And in terms of ownership and profit from his work, as he is, yeah. and that's I mean, why to be fair, <laughs> that's why he gets all the good artists. I was going to say that's why most of the best currently working artists in comics have drawn a creator-owned Mark Miller comic at some point because right. he really, really values artists, and you know, good on him for that. There's lots of things I can criticise him for, but I can't criticise him for that in the slightest. And that's why this is drawn by John Romita Jr. But so, this, so, but this was like a commercial hit like out of the gates if if you guys like was it something that you uh you liked did you stick with it the whole way through as miller um... comics go i liked it because and it's like i don't think there's i mean there are there are quite a few mark miller comics that i like but i don't think there are any that i like without reservation and there are definitely reservations about kick-ass but particularly when those first couple of issues came out and miller will obviously overstate how kind of original and, and revolutionary an idea it was to, to have a comic about an ordinary person in the real world inspired by comics deciding to be a superhero uh, Not that notwithstanding those first two issues or so really were something quite distinctive and and it was a comic that yeah everyone was talking about at the time that it was coming out and again that was probably because Miller was blowing a lot of hot air about it but um, you know yeah it, it was a big hit of a series and I remember buying it the way through to the end and and enjoying it for the most part definitely yeah um and and so i mean that's the that's the mark millar side of it obviously then you've got matthew vaughan directing now we discussed matthew vaughan's follow-up to this film uh, a couple of episodes back which was x-men first class um but i find it very interesting you know how how much matthew vaughan has been closely associated with superheroes so we knew he was very close to directing x3 um that ultimately didn't happen um he was also the reason he was free to direct kick-ass or to look for his next project to develop was because he had been attached to marvel's thor for quite some time um until that didn't come about he kind of left the project and um and yeah, went went and made Kickass. Um, so these two kind of, I would say, very confident, very sure of themselves, very like um, committed in their particular visions in in terms of the, these two artists, but working in different mediums, um, kind of smashed together with Kickass. And obviously, you know, four or five years later, we've now seen Kingsman. That's a that's a relationship that's endured. Um, but Matthew Vaughan comes to this um, with his own particular vision and kind of was developing this as Millar was still making the comic. It's that it's that Scott Pilgrim um, situation all over again. Mm. Um, and I wonder, like, do you think this is kind of a match made in heaven with these two? 
I think, and I mean, also, you know, we kind of should, I think, mention um, Jane Goldman as well. Yes, um, yeah. Because I, I, if you look, I mean, I haven't seen Kingsman, but I've seen two films um, written by Jane Goldman and co-written by Matthew Vaughan and directed by Matthew Vaughan that it, that improve on their source material, um, which are this and Stardust, mm. and. You know, Vaughan and Goldman seem to have this ability to to take a work that has good things about it, but that's flawed in other ways, and to to keep the good things and you know Stardust replace... as well. <laughs> Notably, that's a Neil Gaiman book, so yeah, exactly. You're, that, yeah, it's a rare the source material. Exactly, it's one of Neil Gaiman's weaker works. It's still quite good, but it is one of his weaker works. But the film, I think, the film is great, and you know, mm. I think I think kind of the same here. I mean, yeah, something about Vaughan seems to click with Miller, like you say. You know, that relationship works well. But crucially, something about Vaughan and also Goldman is that they can click with the good bits of Miller's stuff. It's like if they were to make uh, a film of Nemesis, which was uh, a four-issue Mark Miller series that was probably the most hyped thing he'd done since Kick-Ass because um, it had the best one-line hook, which was, what if Batman was a supervillain? It's basically like, you know, in a world where there are no superheroes, there is one guy who dresses up in a costume, and he's a villain, and he fights cops. Yeah, Brilliant premise, brilliant first issue, train wreck of a subsequent three issues, and one of the <laughs> worst endings to anything ever. And it's like, I could, I could see them doing a film of Nemesis that took that great hook and that great opening and made a good film out of it, because they can take the good stuff, but they know to leave out the stuff where Mark Miller just has his Mark Miller moments. You know? Yeah, I mean, so I, I read the comic for the first time this week and I did, I, I have to say, I do prefer the movie, like, I mean, I mean, I, I absolutely loved this movie um, after when I, when I first saw it. And I think I've kind of called on it a little bit. I think quite a lot of the stuff that I liked about it was the stuff that, like, really grabs your attention the first mm. time you see it. And, um... And I, 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 I still have a lot of fun with this movie, but rewatching it and kind of zeroing in on on little things, I was like, hmm, does that really all add up, or does that really go together? And what's the film trying to say here? And and is you know, is there some validity in that particular criticism or whatever? But I did, I, I, I still did enjoy it a lot more than I did the comic. And obviously the comic has a lot of great stuff in it and a lot of great stuff that is retained for the film. But I think you're right, there are there are I mean I, and and the film does retain I think some some bad things about the comic as well. But um yeah, generally I thought it was just and this seems weird to say, almost a story that felt more it felt like it you could do more with it on film than you could on the page and i, I think that that's not always the case it sometimes mm. feels that you're like condensing things down to to do a film version of something and you you often get that when there's actual novels but this is this is an adaptation that fleshes out characters and lets ideas breathe and adds nuance to situation that's just uh, situations just that's just not there on the page and especially in the the second half of the film um, the, the the graphic novel to me seemed to like just smash to a head in the final issue and end, uh, whereas the film I think just has so much more breathing room. There's a there's a thing that that people say, and I'm sure Mark Miller's probably said it. A lot of people have said it about comics in relation to film, which is that you know in comics basically there are no restrictions because your only restriction is is the vision of the artist, um, and actually 
the fact that there's no restrictions and that there are restrictions when you're making a film, I think is to the benefit of this film and to the detriment of the comic because the comic all too often just goes for the ludicrously over the top with the violence and the gore and everything. Mm. And actually the fact that the film, the film can certainly have moments and has got grisly moments, but by its very nature has to be more restrained with some of it and has to go and look somewhere else to do stuff in place of that. Although the I fact that it's able, the, the fact that it's able to do the the stuff that it does do, and it mm. does do an an awful lot. And it, and in fact, I think it's an issue we'll get to later is that was the kind of the stuff that the Daily Mail got angry about it for. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of that actually comes down to one scene that is entirely a film invention. Um, and and but that is that was all able to happen because basically all of Hollywood said no to this. And so Matthew Vaughan went off and made this with his own production company and um, Plan B, Brad Pitt's production company was involved in some point as well. But both, most basically, Matthew Vaughan made this outside of the system and then sold it back into Hollywood, basically. And so was able to do a lot of stuff that, I mean, no Hollywood film was going to have a movie with a, with a 10-year-old girl dropping the C-bomb. Um, and and uh, you know just like moments like I imagine the microwave scene, which again is a film invention, would not be happening in any big studio movie. So the so the film kind of while I think you're right does kind of rein itself back in some regards, is also able to do more stuff than I mean like in a lot of ways this is a lot more violent and um, outrageous than Watchmen even. <laughs> But this is all. This is one of. I think this gets away with a lot in terms of its violence. And actually, you mentioned the microwave scene, and I think that's a perfect example. This gets away with a lot in terms of its violence by having it be so completely slapstick and finding humour in the violence. Now, whether yeah, the, you could yeah. debate the moral rights and wrongs of finding humour in the violence, but almost every majorly violent scene has at least some comical element to it. Oh, um, yeah. And I think yeah. that enables the film to get away with. And it's heavily, heavily stylized, and you've got Matthew Vaughan's very specifically chosen um, soundtrack playing over a lot of a lot of those kind of scenes as well. um, That that gives it a certain feeling. I mean, what you said about you know it being able to um, be a film where a ten-year-old can drop the C-bomb. I mean, I've always thought this about this film. I really don't think this film would have been any worse off if it didn't have that moment. <laughs> I don't I actually, actually think actually it think adds the, anything. The line delivery is really like yeah, weak from Clonerets as well. It's almost yeah. like the line she's I I think she's really great in this film. In fact, yeah. I think it's her best performance. I think it's Aaron Johnson's best performance. It might be Nick Cage's great late career <laughs> performance. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> like that that line really no, really not, falls yeah. dead for a line that caused so yeah. much controversy. Mm. It, it feels like oh, could, do, were you only allowed to get her to read it once or twice on set? Could you <laughs> could you not have reshot that a couple of times? Mm. I mean, for me, the the line that I think Nan about is more the one where she caught I can't remember who it is, but she calls someone cocksuckers. And it's like really, <laughs> like that's that's your big shock moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm. <sighs> 
quite quite so. I mean, the reaction to this film that we we were talking before we started recording. There's, you know, you can back, you can go back and you can find five stars five star reviews of this. Um, there's a great one by Chris Hewitt in Empire. I think Peter Bradshaw gave this five stars. Um, there were there were there were lots of very very positive reviews. Um, I think from both you guys as well um, mm-hmm. around around the internet at the time and in print. And that, but at the same time, there was also the Daily Mail reaction from Chris Tucky, which was to say that this film basically I, I think his the pull quote was pedophiles are gonna love it um <laughs> it, yeah the it, problem with that chris P- hewitt uh, chris hewitt no, no not that chris hewitt review. the problem with that chris tucky review is that there are valid concerns about this film and about this film's portrayal of of, of violence and of the you know putting that character in it that yeah. got completely buried under a totally nonsensical argument that nobody else in their right mind it had even occurred to them because there is absolutely no paedophilic gaze element in the way that Hit Girl is portrayed in this film in the way that Chris Tucky interpreted it by all logical implication paedophiles would not like a child that acted like an adult (laughs) well um but I just remember thinking that that review said more about Chris Tucky than it did about (laughs) undoubtedly yeah I mean but there was also I mean like there was a lot of there was a lot of negativity from other critics I think James you were you you were mentioning how that kind of the UK reaction was generally and Chris Tucky aside a lot stronger than the US reaction um, I was reading um, a review from Karina Longworth and one from uh, Roger Ebert and Roger Ebert was kind of looking at the kind of moral angle and saying like you know that the target audience that this film would have and seeing a young child engaging in such violence that it could be very easily copied and I think Mark Millar's even said he would love to inspire like real life superheroes through this kind of thing um, and 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 then there's the, the other side of the coin where there are people saying it's just like puerile and immature and it thinks it's been clever and it, it like and so you know when you're saying James about like the cocksucker line and you're like really I, I think there are those moments. I think it's very easy for people who don't yeah. like this film and don't buy in to just go, oh, come on. I mean, you're, I mean, Kingsman got exactly that same reaction. Like, re- uh, there's people falling about themselves laughing on the final line of Kingsman and there are other people walking out of the cinema just shaking their heads going, that's the best you can do? That's, that's humour, is it? Is I mean, it- I, I have more time for people who think it's puerile than people who get... As- sort of morally outraged by it because like it's so cartoonish that i i you know i just i don't think you know rating systems being what they are no one who should be affected by this film should see it hmm. and i would also, agree with that i find it very i find it very hard to buy into that that whole yeah, moralistic like, argument you know if if you think its sense of humor is stupid that's different like i can i yeah. can accept that argument completely Hmm. But actually, it's, I really think, and because I said this in, in my review at the time, I think it's got a far stronger moral sense about it than people give it credit for. In fact, the, the, the moral heart of it is one of the main things that it adds that isn't there in the comic, really. Hmm. Although the, the line that sums it up is, to be fair, a line from the comic. It's just that I don't think the comic successfully carries through on the character of Dave. I think Dave is a terrible character in the comic, whereas I think he's a much better drawn character here. Mm. But the line, and it is a bit of a, a hokey line, but why does everybody want to be Paris Hilton and nobody wants to be Spider-Man? Yeah. Um, you know, and just that, that core thing of, hang on a minute, 
it would kind of be the right thing to do to to help people. That is just basically the message of the film. And the the scene that really nails it is the first time he goes. Well, not the first time he goes out because the first time he goes out, you know, he gets the horrific accident. <laughs> but the first time he goes out after the accident, and that guy outside the convenience store, and the guys are beating him up, and he doesn't back down. And just mm. that moment when he's just looking defiantly down the guy's camera phone. And it's just, you know, there's there's nothing in it for him other than that he's decided that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, there is mm-hmm. a, an element of he thinks it'd be pretty cool to be a superhero, sure. But basically, he thinks it'd be cool to be a superhero because what superheroes do is help people. Mm. And, you know, okay, it's wrapped up in a film that has a 10-year-old swearing and chopping people's heads off and a load of cartoonish violence. But basically, that's the centre of the film. And yeah. that's a really good moral message. I mean, <laughs> I would I would massively agree with that, and I actually think that is a really wonderful moment and one of the, the standout moments in the film and, in you're right, in the adaptation. Now, I, I kind of want to talk through an issue that I had with this film on a rewatch because it's, it's something that hadn't really occurred to me before. And like I said, that there are some kind of things that morally I look at this film and, and kind of like raise my eyebrow at. I, I don't quite buy into all of those arguments you know you were talking about before about it influencing kids and it being, um, you know, and it, it, it being problematic in those kind of ways. But the message of the film, and I, I just find... I, I'm. Uh, totally hoping that you're going to explain this to me and tell me why I'm wrong but at its heart is this a movie where a kid goes I want to be Spider-Man and these other two characters go no you should be the Punisher and by the end (laughs) and by the end of the film he's gone yeah I should be the Punisher oh cool look here's a bazooka (laughs) <laughs> like that, I, I just I found I found it really strange that this that and it only occurred to me this time that you've got these two dueling ideologies of what it is to be a superhero and the kind of superhero you can be, and ultimately it's the it's the kind of brutal vigilantes that con- convince this kid to join their way of thinking. I'm, I kind of. Specifically, the bazooka moment. I can see what you're getting at. Well, and there's also I, there is also the minigun moment, like f- five minutes before. I was going to well, say I, I, is... I consider that part of the same thing, really, because yeah. it's the bazooka and, and the minigun, you know, the the jetpack thing and stuff. Yeah, but um, I think up to that point, like most of the stuff that goes wrong goes wrong because of Hit Girl and Big Daddy's approach, and Big Daddy dies as a result of it. And so he's essentially punished for his approach. And I think that while while okay, you know, the film does end with him killing the bad guy. But that does happen in superhero things. You know, there are certain superheroes who aren't supposed to kill the bad guy. But there are a lot of superheroes who do, not just the Punisher. And I think actually the film ends on this note of Dave having shown Hit Girl that their way isn't the only way to save the day. And, you, you know, you can't get much more symbolic than flying off on a jetpack, basically Superman-style, you know, and, and knowing that Mark mm. Miller is as big a fan of Superman as he is as well. I mean, I know Mark Miller is pretty cynical in his comics, but he is also a pretty big fan of Superman. Mm. And so I, I think I think it's more, if anything, about pretty much finding that balance between the two approaches that you tend to find in superhero comics. Okay. I don't know if it says that one is more right than the other because I think both both are shown to be wrong in their way. So yeah. I don't know what you think, James. Yeah, I do th- well I do think like the the issue of 
you know, there are criminals who have been, you know, abandoned by society or whatever, and Hit Girl and Big Daddy are killing them with their shitloads of money. Like, well, you know, there are problems there, and I think the the debate about whether heroes should kill is is one that could have been explored within the bounds of this film and isn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there was a, there was a moment listening to the uh, Matthew Vaughan commentary this film for this film that kind of made me raise an eyebrow as well. He was talking about the scene when Hit Girl does go into that kind of crack den and um, slice and dice everyone in there. And so the implication is that there are a lot of you know bad dudes in there, and that the the main guy, I think it's Razul, and the rest of his crew are kind of like you know that they're, they're, they're they're bad guys. They're affiliated with um our you know main villainous organization frank d'amico's kind of crime syndicate yeah um but there's one guy in there and matthew vaughan says like oh and uh, people always give me stick for this so they see this and there's just this one guy getting high so he's not part of the group he's just there getting high and they're always like oh you know it's not really fair that you killed this guy and it's like well you know, he's a druggie, he's probably done some bad stuff, and, like, you don't know, he could have robbed places, and he could have stolen, and he could have... So, like, he probably deserves it, and I'm like, oh! <laughs> so, is that is that really the message of this film? Is Which is <laughs> interesting, because, like, yeah, I had I, always kind of taken it that... I mean, I think Hit Girl, you, you have to look at Hit Girl as a separate case, because I think that there's a genuine case to be made that, because of her age and because of her upbringing, you can't hold hit girl herself culpable for anything she does in the film i think the whole i think the way i've always mm. looked at it is that big daddy is written as a far less sympathetic character than he actually comes across in the film and the the reason he comes across as so sympathetic is because of the way nick cage plays him yeah and there's also um, one fundamental change to that, his there's one fundamental yeah. change to his narrative from the comic to the movie which is which, that in the comic the whole backstory that yeah that Big Daddy gives in the film is a lie, and that in fact he's kidnapped <laughs> Mindy from her funny, mother. And funny thing it's about a really, really unpleasant <laughs> like twist to discover at that moment in the in the I comic. Mean, I, re- I remember reading that comic obviously as it was coming out, as we talked about before. And actually, I think I even remember having a conversation with James about that twist because I remember when reading that comic when it was coming out, thinking that that was such a brilliant twist, and that, that was actually one of the best things Miller had done in a while. It was it was just a twist you just did not see coming, and just came out of nowhere and mm. was a really great twist. I mean, it does. I, I kind I, of it was, hated it though. <laughs> well, thing is. In the film, it would not make any sense for that to happen, and it's completely right that the film doesn't have that twist. And then I went, I went back and reread the comic recently in preparation for this podcast, and I got to that moment, and I was like, "Well, I remember this being a really good, feeling like a really good twist at the time." But now that I look at it, it makes no logical sense in the overall context, and it also makes absolutely no thematic sense whatsoever. It's it's just it's only there to be a cool twist. And yeah, I can tell that, you, Matthew Vaughan did not care for all. it at all. To be uh, fair, like, <laughs> the, the point of it is to say, like Big Daddy is just like Dave, like he's just a comic nerd. Mm. Like I yeah. can I can see why it's in there. Uh, I mean that comes again, across in the film yeah, as well think, though. Well that's the thing. I don't think it should have been in the film because especially when you've got the him drawing the comic pages like you don't need it. Yeah. Oh, really I, think... I liked that sequence. I really liked that sequence. I know I like uh, which apparently... that's what I mean. I like that sequence oh, but sorry. But you don't need the reveal that Big Daddy is a comic nerd by his briefcase spilling open and being filled mm. filled with like <laughs> silver age stuff or whatever it was. 
Like, you don't need that moment because that part of the character has already been translated. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I did in other, in other means. Yeah. In, in the film, it is just that he does have money. I think I think Mindy makes some reference at some point that, like, oh, we've you know got three million in cash in a suitcase mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how they can afford the jetpack and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I think that comes across um, pretty well. Um, so, one of the other things that relates to that kind of stuff is that I mean, obviously, we talked about how. All, all the violence and, and all that kind of stuff kind of, you know, we don't have a problem with it because it takes place in this very obviously stylized world. Now, what I found a little bit, a little bit confusing is that this, this is a, a film and a comic that kind of prides itself on this is how you could become a superhero in the real world. And this is like, what if a kid really did try and be Spider-Man? And yet, it doesn't take place in anything resembling no. the real world. Yes, it. <laughs> yes, its villains are mobsters, and yes, technically, everything in this film could happen in the laws of physics. I guess, but the comic and the movie are hyper hyper stylized. This is a, like a, this is definitively a comic book world. Mm. Like even even Dave stabbing. Like I think Matthew Vaughan said that. You know, there was the temptation to shoot that in a really kind of gritty, like, realistic way. And he was like, no, that wouldn't be the right way to go. And I think he's completely right. But it is this weird kind of, like, clash of ideas of, what if this was in the real world, except it's not? I mean, I Has that ever been a problem for when, you? When people say that, like, something is, a, oh, what if you had superheroes in the real world? It never is. I've seen Watchmen described as, what if they... So many times described as, what if there were superheroes <laughs> in the real world? What real world is Watchmen set <laughs> Alternate in? Alternate 1985. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, this is the... I mean, it, it does a similar thing to the comic, which is that it starts out purporting to be that. And it. I think. I think, actually, it's a quite successful narrative collapse because 
like yeah. the, you know you have that dialogue um, where he says you know oh you know it, no one would do it in real life because they just get their ass kicked and obviously that does happen to yes, him yeah. but then and then everything after that point is it's the film basically acknowledges within about its first 15 minutes no this couldn't happen in reality so we're not going to show you it happening well it is in kind of we're it is almost that moment in isn't it well, they, this is it's after he gets stabbed it's kind of like the film devolves <laughs> into it becomes, it's, it's almost Jacob's it's, ladder yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it, it is almost like he dies and the rest of the film is a fever dream. <laughs> yeah, like, I remember yeah. when when uh, when issue one of this came out, it ended with him sort of broken and beaten on the, mm. on the ground after being hit by a car. And it's kind of like, there's your superheroes in the real world take. Yeah, here, <laughs> that, that's where that battered. take ends. Yeah. yeah, and then issue two onwards is, let's have fun with that. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, so so we initially we immediately get, don't we? Okay, uh, he's had metal plates put in his head, and he's got uh, metal on lots of different parts, lots of the different parts of his body that makes him kind of like look like Wolverine on a on an X ray, <laughs> and his nerve endings have been damaged, so he can't feel pain like other people. And it's like, okay, well, at this point, you have given him a superpower. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's like a he higher tolerance to for pain, but that's it. To, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, and I mean, I, and that's, I think, that's something I think the film and comic both did. Like they they pursued the point up to the maximum it's possible natural end point. Of it. Yeah. yeah, and I have to say I love those first kind of like ten fifteen minutes. Um, I mean, when essentially it's just a story of how one kid who is going to be Quicksilver and his friend who is going to grow <laughs> to be Quicksilver, they and their other friend who is going to. Get a job on the office. Dwight from the office. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Um, they're they're just hanging around and being kids, and um, (laughs) like they're they're nerds, and they go to comic shops, and they like um, get mugged by bullies, and I mean the whole the whole like introductory monologue from Aaron Johnson, um, who I do I really do think is like he has this kind of weird crass charisma to him in this film, in that like. Mm you kind of think this kid is a bit of a dick and a douche, but you can't help but love him. Um, and I, I don't think, I don't think Aaron Johnson has effectively managed to do that very often. He does it so well here. And that, mm. that the monologue about looking at his teacher's boobs and masturbating and then <laughs> masturbating again. And the whole, the, the really great cut to, you know, this is not going to be the, I will avenge you mother, um, story. I, I mean, it's it's verbatim almost taken from the comic, but that sequence on on both the page and in the film is is incredible. Kind of, yeah. May, maybe it doesn't end up being that film, uh, and it no, doesn't I mean, end up being that comic, but it's it's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm on on Johnson. I mean, I, I mentioned this before that just in the comic, I like. Dave is just an awful character. He's just an asshole. He just he yeah, really, he is. really is. No sympathy for him. And the thing that worries me in the comic is that I think Mark Miller thinks that he's a likable character. And it's a problem that, again, I, I feel like we're ragging on Miller all the time because there are good things about Mark Miller's comics as well. But I, I, I think... I don't think he knows how to write a likable character as well as he thinks he does. And I think Dave is supposed to be likable in the comic, and he really isn't. Um, in this... I mean, yeah, he does have that sense of he's a bit of a dick, but he's a bit of a dick in the way that all teenage boys yeah, are yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. a bit of a dick. And I mean, I like, that, I like the he kind of just has these goofy little smirks to his yeah. friends, and no, it's, he's a, just, it's a really, yeah, it's a really engaging performance. It's like, hmm. I mean, I, I think generally in real life it seems like Aaron Johnson is a bit of a dick, but in the, <laughs> between this and Age of Ultron, he he does seem to 
to play characters who you know are kind of a bit of a dick, but you sort of like anyway. I think he, I think he's got that cornered quite well. Did yeah. you like Quicksilver? Yeah, in, yeah, in Age of Ultron, I thought Quicksilver was great. I felt about him <laughs> because the way I thought the he was a bit of a dick. But yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I I really like all that in introductory stuff. Um, mm. So obviously that this then okay, um, it is purporting to be real real world superhero and kind of changes tack. Um, the 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 comic certainly goes a lot into like riffing on the idea of um like comic book culture you know these are comic book nerds who are influenced by the superheroes that they're reading about and you know i i spotted like they're they're reading you know particular comics in the film i saw runaways pop up at one point and they're referencing (laughs) different arcs from different comics and, and talking about different things um and I think the movie kind of does that as well. It seems to have this riffing on comic book culture by the nature of the story, but is able to double down on that by doing um, comic book movie and TV references. And in, in, in a way, it's kind of like the perfect text for this podcast because it kind of it kind of flits between the both of those. I mean, most obviously in Nicolas Cage's affectation, um, which... <laughs> Uh, we need to talk about it. It's, it's wonderful. It was yeah. Nicolas Cage's idea, and apparently um, the producers were very sceptical, and Matthew Vaughn um, <laughs> convinced them that, no, Cage was onto a winner here. I think it splits people. What What do you guys think of it? No, it's such it's, a it's perfect fantastic. idea. Yeah, yeah. Like, really why, why wouldn't you do that if, we should, when, when we should say came up? Nick Cage is... Uh, wearing a costume that is very Batman esque in in that it is not in the comics. It's, it's very not, well, mm, yeah, it's, it's very not, Batman Begins Batman specifically as well. Yes, yeah. uh, but is doing the Adam West Batman <laughs> voice when, when it's, uh, but only when he's in the yeah when when he's in costume yeah and only when he's it, in front yeah. of other people as well. <laughs> yeah, true. It's yeah, it's it's great. It's just it does it it's it gets I mean you talked before about you know you've got the scene where he's drawing the art that gets across that he's he's an old comic book nerd, but actually this gets it across as well and it's like mm-hmm. yeah, this is a guy who on the one hand he is, you know, a complete psychopath vigilante, but on the other hand oh, completely, he's a complete completely psychopath vigilante crazy. who wants yeah. to be Batman. <laughs> it's yeah. just that's yeah. and he the way that be, he decides he wants to be all versions of Batman. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense that he has kind of like he he has a screw loose because the, this thing in his past did actually happen to him. You know, he, mm-hmm. his his wife was killed, and you know he was or his wife died, and he was um, you know in prison, and uh, you know he was unable to raise his daughter for the first couple of years. And you can you can see kind of like that this is a guy who something has snapped, and <laughs> not everything is quite right with him. And Nicolas Cage. He just gets that. I, I mean, like, I, you, we talked about in the Ghost Rider podcast and how he has these, like, little quirks that he brings to a, brings to a character, but they're, they're all completely thought out. They're not, they're not just plucked out of the ether to be just, like, Nicolas Cage being a bit wacky again. It, it all makes sense for this character, and I just thought you get such a stronger sense of who this guy is in the movie than you ever do in the comics. And obviously it ends up being a different character anyway. One of my favourite moments is when they're tooling up for, you know, the kind of the, the last battle kind of oh, thing God. and you see him putting on his mask and, and the he's makeup. painting on yeah. the black makeup. Oh. <laughs> you get it's superhero movies. Yeah. See, the, the cage thing that always comes out for me is when, when he's tied to the chair and he's on fire and he's shouting instructions to Hit Girl. 
Like you just can't imagine any other actor oh, no. making that work. <laughs> that is that is wonderful because I mean like so he's dying in front of his child and is in immense pain because he's burning alive but is singularly focused on saving his daughter's life. But saving his daughter's life involves murdering a whole bunch of people who have them held captive. And he... I I wouldn't even like to attempt the line delivery that Nicolas Cage gives. It is is completely bonkers. But I think that is my favourite part of the movie. Uh, It's definitely up there. It's yeah, and and I mean that's that's all all happening just after we've seen this kind of like horrendous horrendous scene play out with with the two of them being beaten up, and and yeah the the whole the kind of twisted nature of it that this is him getting his daughter to murder people ruthlessly, oh, it's just yeah absolutely wonderful. Um, some of the other comic book stuff that it riffs on, um, I mean, not just not just what Nicolas Cage does. I mean, we get Henry Jackman's score has, um, you know, especially in you know the the opening moments, you can you can feel the John Williams vibe, so it um, feels very Superman-y. I was about to when, say, um, <laughs> test screen, yeah, yeah. Well, not test screenings, but yeah, um, James and I, I think. Yeah, we were at different screenings, but I think, but the previous screenings that we saw to review it, the score wasn't complete, and so the start of the film um, did actually use uh, the Superman theme. Oh, amazing! And um, I think, yeah, I think they, I think they also use Superman for the bit where he's got the costume and he's trying the costume. Yeah, on. that's that's and the bit used, where I remember it from. Yeah, and they used Danny Elfman's Batman for um, the bits with the car. Yeah. Um, yeah. And well, bizarrely, the final bit where they're flying off on the jetpack used all around the world by Oasis. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think um, you know Danny Elfman actually does contribute some music to this, and Henry Jackman, like I say, it's it's specifically John Williams influenced. Mm. Um, there's another moment where Kickass rips open his shirt for the first time to kind of, and you can see the scuba suit underneath, and <laughs> it is pretty much Christopher Reeve, like it, it is Christopher. It's the same shot basically, um, and he does the same thing on the roof when Kickass is running, when he's running to jump over the roof. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Vaughan <laughs> specifically uses the same shots that Sam Raimi used for um, for <laughs> yeah, uh, Tobey Maguire jumping across the roof in, in Spider Man. When I was watching that, I was like, "This is so similar. It must have been a direct riff." And yeah, that doesn't yeah. surprise me at all. I do like that bit when he when he gets to the edge of the building and stops and just basically goes fucking hell no. <laughs> um, yeah, and you've also got the. I mean, I think. I mean, it's a really obvious one, but the reference right at the end. I do like the last line. That's uh, what the wait till they get a load of me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's obvious. It's but I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I actually I think that is that is one of the things that I think the movie is really successful in doing, and why I kind of think that almost the movie is a better medium for this story than the page is because because we do have a movie and TV mm. world that is so steeped in superheroes a, at this point. There's a vernacular that you can that you can draw on, and you can yeah yeah, and I think I think as well. I mean, you talked about stuff like that Spider Man scene. It never really spoofs, though, and I think no, I think that's no. good. It's sort of it's it, it's drawing on all of this stuff, and it and it's it's drawing on the the idea that you'll recognise this stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, it it never goes into just parodying it, and I think that's an important distinction that it that it makes. It's you know it it does call all of this stuff to mind, 
but it's not a it's not a Friedberg and Seltzer version of a superhero movie. No, um, I mean, I was what I was wondering when I was watching this was what the film ultimately was trying to say and what it was actually aiming to do. Is it is it a film that's just trying to do a pretty simple look we've come up with our own superhero we're going to tell this fun story except we're not going to be held back by kind of like um you know any sense of uh, like decency this is these are the r- rules <laughs> we should adhere to we're just gonna we're just gonna go out there throw everything at it and have a load of fun um or, or whether it actually has anything to say because you're right i don't feel like it's spoofing and i don't feel like it's it's um like really trying to directly homage more than it is just trying to be this is what films in this genre are and we're going to tell a, a slightly different story within it but i, I, I just I, I couldn't tell whether the film was trying to say anything specific and i wonder whether that is like what holds it back ultimately from being something really great whether it it doesn't seem to have anything that is going look this is what we want you to take away from this about comic books and about comic book movies I think but maybe ultimately despite the fact that it's coming from a different direction it just it does end up just being another really well realized really well executed comic book movie is that fair yeah i mean i think there is sort of a hint of subtext there in that at the end of the film other people are inspired by his actions to go out and do good themselves and I think if there's any message to it, it is that that first action scene, or sorry, second action scene, sort of, you know, help people and don't back down from it, sort of. Because, you know, aside from the ending, that's the big, that's the big moment of, you know, where you're punching the air in sort of glee, mm. is that he's, you know, he's doing what he set out to do in helping people. Mm. So I think if there's anything, it's that. But I also agree that it's not particularly heavy. You know, it doesn't it doesn't go very deep on it. No, I think that just like almost the trappings of it might suggest to you that this is a film with pretensions to say something more than it ever really does. And I think that might have I think that might have wrong-footed some critics at the time, and that that they were expecting some kind of. Um, massive like takedown takedown of the genre or real subversion of it and really what yeah. it does is it kind of just really glories in doing d- d- making like tweaks on the various different tropes and stuff like that yeah i mean it's got all that the same been... it's got all the same beats as a marvel movie essentially hasn't it it's inter- i just think that matthew vaughn i, I think he he's created a, a greater overall product here but i'm not sure that i'd like want to give him credit for like everything he adds to this is better I think I would like I would like to temper it somewhat. Um yeah, the um well, I mean I can see why it's done that way, but the the romance plot. Um, I was about to say if anything <laughs> if this movie gets anything wrong from the adaptation, it's the scene where having lied to her yeah. and you know killed that guy or you know helped that guy die and stuff. Like after admitting all that she like jumped his bones. Like I remember watching that in the in the cinema and thinking, <laughs> "Okay, when are they going to reveal that this is all some kind of masturbatory <laughs> fantasy?" And they never yeah. did. 
Yeah, I mean, this is probably another another film that you know doesn't you know it's getting boring. Doesn't probably do a, a great job by its female characters. I mean, because Katie is just yeah, you're right. In the in the comic, she reacts to finding out that he'd been pretending to be gay the whole time by basically hitting him and then um, well uh, getting the, a boyfriend to beat him up. <laughs> yeah, um, and then sending him a. A video or a picture that's uh, uh, made me go. Oh, this is the kind of Mark Millar stuff that I imagine yeah. most people raise their eyebrows <laughs> at. But yeah, she she just in the movie she doubles down, and now this and and this is kind of it's like this nerd fantasy where now the hottest, like most socially conscious, good all round great girl um, now also wants to have sex with him all the time um, uh, in public whenever he wants. Basically, it's a it's a very strange decision. And then so she also has a friend that's pretty much her role is in some ways you could say beefed up for the movie because she kind of becomes <laughs> the um, love interest of Clark Duke. But also, I don't think she ever speaks. I don't think she ever says a word. I think she just kind of looks at Clark Duke like terrified. Uh, or like, like, oh, what's what's going on here? Or, oh, hey, I, I, I she like does. You. I think she says something like, they say where's uh, where's Katie and she says with Dave why else would I be here or something like right. that's basically her only line I mean and that goes back to that was another one of the problems that uh, the, the people kind of who were complaining about the sexualization of Hit Girl it, so we get Clark Duke has copped off with Katie's friend and Kickass and Dave is is with Katie and then the third character the Evan Peters character um he kind of is watching Hit Girl when she is doing that like badass thing on the internet and goes, oh my God, she's amazing. Um, I want to marry her. And the other guy goes, dude, she's like 10. And he goes, uh, I don't care, I'll wait for her. Which, um, to me, I always read as uh, as a kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm not sexually attracted to her. It's just yeah. whoever that person is is so fucking awesome re- that when she remember- is 16, I would be interested. <laughs> I remember Chris Tookie quoting that line he, I remember him quoting the line I think I'm in love with a dude she's about 10 and not quoting the follow up line which was <laughs> I don't care I'll wait and it's like you have actually removed the context in order to make that sound far worse than it is it's a gag yeah. and it's not yeah it's uh, yeah. I have to say like I really the Daily Mail is looking for moral outrage <laughs> anyway <laughs> I really like those two I like Clark Duke and Evan Peters um they, they, I mean, almost discovered for this film, um, and I think they're both. Um, I, 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 unless I this time weirdly, but I wonder whether it was just that I'd been so charmed by them the first time around that they seemed like the goofy kind of friend kids, almost like the, the like the American equivalent of the like mates that Will has in the In Betweeners, you know, that they're kind of his mates, but they're taking the piss out of him all the time, and that they're just as nerdy and dumb as he is. <laughs> Um, and I just, I just found myself really charmed by those two, um, and you know, I, I, I can see why they are still, you know, two guys who are showing up in studio movies and are in demand, and uh, why one of them um, probably correctly thought that it wasn't a wise decision to return for the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> um, just quickly, I want to say of the ensemble, though, I think Christopher Mintz Plas is probably the you know the the big piece of the puzzle that we haven't mentioned yet 
Yeah, so mm. what, what... Well, we how, haven't really what, talked about Chloe Moretz either, but yeah. Well, well, <laughs> but we, I, I mean, I guess we've barely even mentioned Red Mist as a character and and mm. the whole the whole mob side of things as well. What So let, let's start with Red Mist and kind of uh, address that side of the movie, the villain side. Um, it's a, does it's does Mint's Plus work it... for you? Because he's a, he's a big departure from the Red Mist on the page. I think it's a way in which the film, again, drastically improves on the comic. Um, I think... Well, it's it's kind of it sort of does two things. It's sort of on the one hand, we know much earlier in the film than we do in the comic that he's a bad guy. But on the other hand, even though we know at the start that he's that he's on the side of the bad guys, we like him much more in the film than in the comic. Because again, in the comic, he's just it's just unpleasant. Whereas in this, again, he's just a massive nerd. Um, and actually, I like that. Okay, you know, he, he does eventually kind of turn out to be the villain. And he, you know, it, he he is someone who, on the one hand, wants to sort of take over his dad's criminal empire because he thinks it's cool. But also, he's a massive nerd, and he just kind of wants to be a superhero as well. It, and his way of becoming a superhero is to pretend to be one in order to entrap Kickass. But actually, he enjoys the being a superhero. Yeah, this is as the, much. You know, it's 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 like it's the the, the trap is a pretext for him to get to get all that mm. cool stuff and do that it's a different character on the page isn't it the character on the page is just pure evil he's like a mini version of his dad i think he actually says something Mm. like about how like seeing dave getting beaten up actually turns him on or something um whereas the the character on the page like the character on the page yes he wants to impress his dad and get rid of you know hit girl and big daddy for him but he actually sees dave as someone who would be his friend and Mm. um like kind of thinks that he's really cool because he's just another comic book nerd like him who wanted to dress up like a superhero. Yeah, like and it, it, I don't think you can play down the Christopher Mintz Plast casting in that, that this comes two or three years after Superbad, where Chris Mintz Plast at that stage, if he isn't still now, was basically just McLovin. And <laughs> the only like really notable role that he'd had between that and Kickass was in Role Models, where he basically played another kind of like <laughs> massive nerdy kid. But basically, he was McLovin. And when McLovin shows up like that, you, I think a lot of the audience, which I think Superbad and Kickass probably had a lot of audience crossover, were just like, "Ah, it's McLovin." It wasn't Chris Min's class. It was McLovin. <laughs> yeah. And you're right. There is this kind of immediately, you are kind of drawn to him. I love their shit fight at the end as well. <laughs> I really like that. It's the perfect. Well, I, and I love the moment when they're in the the Mistmobile and they're listening to is it Niles Barkley and just kind of like nodding along and kind of like doing dumb little dance moves with each other. Um, I thought it was quite kind of like a, a sweet friendship. And you're right. I think in in that regard, really does improve on the on the idea of that character from the comic. I did. I did still find it difficult to buy Christmas Plus at, at certain moments. I, I'm not. I think he's probably improved as an actor since then. I'm not sure he is the the best actor amongst this group. Maybe not the best actor, but I think he's the best comic. The thing I like about the the film version is that he's kind of not a mature person. Like he's he's got those kind of daddy issues, and he's really hoping to to be treated like an adult but not getting that respect that he thinks he deserves hmm. he like, just really wants to impress somebody yeah exactly yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like first he, his he dad and then kick ass and he doesn't like, really care yeah. care who from <laughs> like, and I think that's something that I know we you know we shouldn't be talking about the sequel but him in the sequel as 
like that that character thread continues and that's one of the mm. things I like about the sequel um and also yeah sorry another point I was going to make is that even though he's trying to be evil like he still pulls kickass out of a burning warehouse yeah like, I so- think it's just a, it's another one of those cases where the the movie is just able to with a little bit more room do a lot more stuff for a character to make them seem like a real human being mm-hmm. and not just a caricature. And yes, this all does take place in this ridiculous stylized comic book world. But I think I think mostly and I think it's 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 a little bit more difficult for Hit Girl and Big Daddy, but I think mostly for everyone else, they do kind of feel like real people. They do kind of they mm. they, they, they I, I get a sense of them all as human beings and that extends to even, um, Frank and it extends to uh, yeah. Dave's dad and um, even some of the goons in the organization. <laughs> I was I was gonna say with, 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 with Frank. I mean I I love Mark Strong yes. anyway, but yeah. um like I mean he is mostly this relentless stereotype, but what I like about him is just like the exasperation because <laughs> he's just got this sense throughout of oh it's god, the- I can't believe these ridiculous people in these stupid costumes. And the bit when he when he gets out of the car and shoots the the <laughs> kick ass impersonator. Yes. It's the reveal, so isn't it? Where funny. he's like, you know, who has a kick ass impersonator at their party? <laughs> like, it's just so yeah. perfect, and yeah. at the moment, there's the, the moment where him and uh, Chris Minsplas are in the car together. When you can still hear the goon who's been tortured and killed inside <laughs> yeah. screaming, and he's talking about <laughs> he's what talking they're going to order the... when they get to the yeah. cinema. <laughs> and there's great. there's more it's riffing really there well on judged, um, um... superhero stuff when they get to the cinema. There's the Spirit Three is the film that is <laughs> yeah. uh, that is up yeah. on the billboard. I, I thought that was a I thought that was a, a, a fun little dig <laughs> right there. <laughs> Um, what, what did you think about the the mob? Because again, um, they didn't feel like a real mob to me. <laughs> they, like um, this, this didn't well, feel it's, like it's, Mindy it's Dexter and Dexter Fletcher and Jason Fleming. Yeah, well, there's, like, there's that. You know. <laughs> but it didn't feel like they were taking down, you know, like the Sopranos or anything like that. <laughs> this was, this was again. Yeah, okay. These are these are the villains that you have to have in a kind of pared down this takes place in the real world you know our super villain is not going to be you know like um i don't know magneto or uh or someone like that but it's but so it's mobsters but yeah they're they're they're, they're an absolute cartoon of an organization they're always <laughs> hanging out in this one warehouse uh, <laughs> and yeah and we, and we have like yeah dexter fletcher and jason fleming and, and uh, I, I think matthew vaughn does find lots of um uh, fun grisly ways to dispatch them all. Um, it's it's really, it's really quite nasty, isn't it? Yeah, it's the it's the way it kind of bursts like a balloon that had me laughing. Oh, the the Dexter in the, the in the car, yeah. yeah, the car that he drives away from Layer Cake. Actually, <laughs> he drives away in that car from Layer Cake, and um, yeah, and then uh, maybe it's the same character turning up and getting squashed here. <laughs> Jason Fleming gets shot through the cheek. Uh, we have that other guy in the microwave. Um, I, 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 I think there's such there's such a like brazen confidence to everything that Matthew Vaughn does with that stuff, and like I say, obviously intersects with Mark Millar as well. That I just, I, I'm just, I just buy it. I mean, even if it doesn't always sit comfortably with me, and I, I do kind of think ideologically, I'm not quite sure whether me and Matthew Vaughn would be on the same page if we discussed like the the morals of this movie or. Like you know the kind of the rights and wrongs of how certain characters act, but um, 
you, you can't help but admire just how like swashbuckling he is in his approach to all of this. <laughs> it's just that there's just a huge sense of fun, and I think that's I think that explains why there were so many five star reviews of this at the time. Because for me, it's not a five star film. It's it's a it's probably a solid four, um, but it's you can't help. I, I mean, unless you are morally outraged by it. I think it's it's hard not to get swept up in the fun of it all. And I kind of had that same sense with Kingsman, where Kingsman, there's a lot of stuff that I kind of go like, oh, yeah. did you have to? And, oh, I don't really like that. But also I'll find myself just kind of forgetting about what the movie's saying for a minute or how it's saying it and just go, oh, God, that scene is absurd. And just <laughs> laugh, laughing along with it and having a great time. And I, I think he he definitely gets that he gets that in a lot of the action scenes. I mean, some of the music that he uses to score this. I mean, so we get the the particularly the, the music that always stands out to me is the the music that plays when Mindy is uh, taking out all of the goons in that room for the first time. But I mean, as always, you guys are probably better versed than me in uh, talking about the merits of a soundtrack. Like the thing I think works about the soundtrack is that it's got that kind of mixtape quality. Like the music is so, mm. it's so like upfront in pretty much all the major scenes. That I actually, I mean that that Prodigy track is a pretty famous pre-existing track of theirs, mm-hmm. and I I can't dis as far as I'm concerned when I hear that it's the theme from Kickass. Yeah, exactly. Like, I can't disassociate now, it yeah. from Kickass. Mm. Yeah. What else is on there? I mean, obviously it's got the kind of cartoonish hit girl stuff. And, and well, and there's the, there's the, obviously the big Elvis moment at the end. I think I think that's almost the moment that whenever I'm watching this, just stands out to me so so much in that it's just this ridiculously overblown. Like I say, I don't like the very idea that Dave is there with these miniguns blowing people to pieces. But it's so. But well it's such out. it's such a like balls on the table moment going. Look at what our film is doing. We are like <laughs> playing Elvis Presley in an absurd manner right now, and watching this superhero in a scuba costume flying through the air on a jetpack, gunning down people in a room. And a couple of minutes later, he is going to be getting out of bazooka to shoot someone into the sky. I feel like, in a way, this this discussion we've had kind of started out like with with um, you know themes and ideas about the movie and the translation, and we kind of we kind of just moved towards a lot of moments that we like, and in a way, I think that's probably appropriate. <laughs> like, I think there is just I think I, I walk away from this film ultimately just going that was fun and that was fun and that was fun and I enjoyed that and I had a good time with that and. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about the Big Daddy scene. Like, this is the thing. It's a film that's got so many of these moments that we can pick up that we haven't even got around to talking about the best one. Go straight into it, Seth. <laughs> well, it's just... It, it's an astonishingly good scene. That that one take... I mean, I don't know if it is one take or if it's a fake one take, but um, the security camera footage of Big Daddy taking out the warehouse is just a supremely well-directed <laughs> action sequence. It's just... I could just watch that over and over again. <laughs> you see, what's so good about that is why I let you say what it was because I didn't know what you were talking about. Not that, <laughs> not that that scene isn't just a fantastically choreographed, like really well realized idea. The way they kind of like 
moves from the security camera footage to showing the whole thing in this kind of like sweeping camera movement there's like a real grace to it and then back out again to to the them watching it on the tv and this nonplussed look on mark strong's face <laughs> it is fantastic but for me, you could quite have easily been talking about the first time we meet Hit Girl and Big Daddy and he's shooting her in the mm-hmm. in the park, which, again, we haven't talked about. But when you see that first, that scene for the first time, you're like, you're meeting these two characters for the first time with a little comic book meanwhile showing up on the screen. And it's, it's just, I mean, like, as an introduction to two characters, you're like, I think even in Roger Ebert's scathing review of this movie, even he was like, no one could have sold that scene like Nicolas Cage could. Um, there's, but you're right, there's so many only, of them. My only reservation with that scene is, while it's a lovely, great little scene, um, it's very similar to um, some stuff in Preacher. Like, it's not entirely the same, right. but the whole thing with the the kindly dad teaching his little girl to shoot guns when she's far too young um, is is almost a direct lift from a particular issue of Preacher um, so that's maybe my only concern with that I mean the, the film plays it differently and, and yeah, Nick and Cage Preacher is great I like Cage. the scene where they're having the chat afterwards at the ice cream place but, <laughs> it's um, the look on his yeah. face when she says she wants a puppy okay well I mean so there's there's so many of those moments that we talked about that we like so much but I mean I think I think what a lot of it comes down to is yes there is that confidence from everyone involved uh, but that that does extend to the cast too and I think probably the cast member that personifies that the most is Clomerettes because it it <laughs> bears, bears remembering that yes Clomerettes is is older now that she was actually like 10 years old when she was filming this and was kind of at the center of this like controversy um around her character um she is very very good at doing all of that like cool like old enough acting like an adult as this superhero but also having this childlike innocence and this naivety but that the kind of that the character doesn't even realize that she has like she, it's almost like it's the, the most cartoonish scene is when she's playing up being a child when she's dressed up <laughs> as the schoolgirl, um, and 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 that's that's very strange to think about. It's a very very accomplished performance from Chloe Moretz, and I think it's it it um, you know it it's um, what what really pays testament to that is that all many of the negative reviews of the film still went. Yes, I hate everything about this hit girl character, but the, the young actress Chloe Moretz is really good. <laughs> The, I mean, the surprising thing is kind of that she's how little a part of the film she is. I mean, she is a reasonably major part of the film, but in terms of screen time, you know, she, she's not in it that much more than Big Daddy is. Um, I mean, in terms of her performance, one of the bits that I think really stands out is when um, there's the bit when she's actually about to. It's I think it is at the end of the horrendous slaughter scene and then there's a guy that she hasn't noticed who's coming after her with a knife Mm. and Big Daddy shoots him from a distance and there's that little moment of panic from her that I think is really well played Mm -hmm. because pretty much everything else she does in the film is covered by this ridiculous bravado Mm. but that's when she sort of gets the you know, the, the child underneath it, kind of thing. And apparently, really she well. learned a lot of that, like the the stuff with the butterfly knife. She learned <clears> to do all of that herself. Um, and I think quite a lot of the action she is actually on set and present for. Um, and I mean, she between her and Mark Strong, they do a fantastic job of selling that final fight. You're right. That um, again, not completely sold on the morals of the movie in that final sequence. 
but the counterbalance between kick-ass and red mist fighting having this just absurd (laughs) fight in one room and then this kind of like martial arts master of a crime boss that that (laughs) mark strong convinces us that he is um showing the skills that he uh showed off earlier on when he roundhouse kicked the kick-ass impersonator in the face um and these two have this absurd fight and they're both just really really good at selling it both like physically and just uh, nailing the absurdity of the scene that this big six foot tall bruising man is fighting this 10 year old girl and it's more of a fair fight than the two male teenagers fighting in the other room (laughs) yeah I mean you know there's so much you can you can praise about the entire performance like it, it comes across as incredibly natural and I think that's what makes it work what I think is good about Chloe Moretz is that she inhabits the character so well that, like, you kind of, by the end of it, even though she's a psychopathic killer, you're sort of on her side as yeah. a sort of wronged party. Um, kind of more, definitely more so than you are with Big Daddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, obviously, the you know, the writers clearly felt that way because, and directs it because she comes back for the sequel as uh, hmm. essentially co-lead, if not lead. I think it would be very easy to hate the characters of Hit Girl and Big Daddy. They they could essentially be the villains of this film. Um, if Mark Strong wasn't so good at being that villain, and you haven't, you didn't have Chloe Moretz and Nick Cage yeah, I mean, playing I, those two characters. I think whatever you think about this film, it has contributed Hit Girl to pop culture. Mm. Like I think, I think that's that's the thing that people are going to remember, sort of twenty years down the line. Yeah, and uh, any other standout performances or characters? I I just did want to mention that I've realised that we have what might be our first back-to-back actor in episodes of Cinematic Universe, uh, which is Corey Johnson, who was your favourite in Hellboy and is also one of the goons in this. Oh, (laughs) wow. Amazing. I was for a second, I was really reaching there to try and figure out what that might have been. I was like, because I I never realised that's Elizabeth McGovern as Dave's mum dying at the table in the start. Um, I, I just never even recognised that that was her, and I was like, "Was, was Elizabeth McGovern in Hellboy?" Or, I mean, Claudia Schiffer's on that billboard. Did Matthew Vaughn let her out of his basement to go and do a scene in Hellboy? I, <laughs> uh, oh, Corey Johnson, fantastic! Um, he is he is very very good. <laughs> okay, uh, well, on that note, um, I think we should probably bring our kick-ass discussion to a close. Um, but we'll move on now to our our, uh, our recommendation section. Now, given that I've already read Kick-Ass, uh, it's not going to be one of the recommendations, but if you are interested, um, I, I'd say there's there's a lot to enjoy about Kick-Ass um, on the page, um, even if it, it, for me, isn't quite as good of the film. But if you are interested, listeners, you know, give that a read as well. But Seven James, what are you, what are you going to recommend me to read based on Kick-Ass? Uh, I have uh, a favourite Grant Morrison comic that I'm going to recommend you on quite tenuous grounds, but you know there's no other way i'm going to get anyone else to read it on this podcast so um my recommendation is uh a vertigo comic called kill your boyfriend by grant morrison and philip bond okay uh and i'm recommending me i'm recommending it on the basis that it's got a similar mix of comedy uh violence and sort of suburban life as kick-ass uh it's not about um, you know, it's not about people trying to be superheroes 
in any way, but I think those elements make it uh, similar enough to justify recommending it. And is it going to be as um, confusing or mind-blowing as most of the Grant Morrison no, stuff that I've encountered a, so it far? it is a very poppy Grant Morrison comic. It's so accessible, and it's even set in suburban Britain. Mm. So you should have no trouble with this. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll look forward to that one. Um, Seb, what have you got for me? I'm actually doing a similar thing to James in that I'm recommending you something because this might be the best tenuous excuse I get to recommend <laughs> it. Uh, but actually, it's I, I think it's it's actually not what I was originally going to recommend, and then James <laughs> guessed that it was going to be my recommendation. I thought, oh yeah, that's a much better suggestion. Um, and it's actually I think it's got quite a decent link. So on the theme of comics about the idea of superheroes in the real world, I'm going to recommend you a Superman comic. Oh. Um, I can't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast or to you at all before, so I'm curious as to if the name means anything to you, but it's Superman Secret Identity by Kurt Busiek and Stuart Immonen. Have I talked about this before? Um, I, I don't know. The, the name rings a bell, so it's possible, but... Because um... if I haven't, I kind of now don't really want to say anything about okay. it. <laughs> I don't even really want to say why I'm recommending it. I think I'd just like to leave you to it, yeah, and yeah. I think you'll be able to talk on the on the, the pod, on the minisode about. You'll be able to see why I've recommended it and why it's so distinctive and why it's not a usual Superman story. All I will say is that it's in my top few, not just Superman comics ever, but comics ever. I just I I I find it hard to find the words to express just how much I love this comic. And I think it's quite an apt thing to follow Kick-Ass with. So uh, it's a four-issue miniseries from 2004, written by Kurt Busiek, drawn by Stuart Immonen. Um, It's in print and it's on Comixology, so it should be quite easy to get hold of. And um, I actually... I would usually we're recommending stuff that we like anyway, but anyone listening to this, if you haven't read this comic, please also go and read it, because... Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Um, well, that that sounds very intriguing. Uh, I'm going to be looking forward to that one. Um, but we we move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. Um, and this week, guys, um, I'm I'm fairly confident that the two pitches you give to me um, are not ones that um, actual real Hollywood would ever want to move ahead with. Uh, because <laughs> this week, I would like you to pitch me the movie where, just like Kickass, Dave Lazuski you become a DIY superhero. Pitch me the movie where Seb Patrick becomes a superhero and where James Hunt becomes one. Um, and uh, Seb, I'll come to you first. It's only just occurred to me when you said that that we you should have had us each pitch a movie starring the other one. <laughs> oh, superhero. right, we'll save that for a future uh, podcast. Kick-Ass 2. <laughs> thanks, um, thanks for the idea, Seb. <laughs> yeah, when Kick-Ass uh, 2 comes around, that is the pitch. That's all. That is a, that is a um, long lead tease for the listeners right there. <laughs> um, I think I, I would have to be spoiler man. And uh, my superheroic ability would be to go round trying not to give away the plot details of things and then inadvertently doing so and having everyone getting annoyed at me. Oh, spoil something now. You've got to. How does it end? How does it end? (laughs) It ends with me getting beaten up by Al Kennedy and Jamie McKay. Oh, fantastic! Um, that's that's actually um, a very high mark to live up to, uh, James. What what is your DIY superhero going to be? Uh, mine was going to be kidney stabber. <laughs> okay, I just think like there are loads of people who just irritate me on a daily basis, and I was thinking if you know if I was like 
slightly less hinged. I uh, just sort of <laughs> wait until people got into lifts and just sort of shiv them in the kidneys and then run. Up. <laughs> so That's I was thinking maybe you've if... very much taken the big daddy approach there and not the kick-ass approach. Yeah, I mean, technically, if you want to get technical about it, it's probably not very heroic to do that. No, but I think it would you feel are a really super good. villain. It would be I'm, good. I'm, I'm fairly certain you are a super villain. <laughs> and uh, worryingly, I don't think I could sell you, I could send Spoiler Man to uh, stop you. <laughs> um, as long as he doesn't spoil anything I'm watching. <laughs> no, that's the thing. Because, what if Spoiler Man uh, shivs. What if Kidney Stabber <laughs> shivs Spoiler Man in the kidneys? Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> but then, but that 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 would make Kidney Stabber a hero. So that's how Kidney Stabber becomes a superhero by ridding the world of Spoiler Man. <laughs> There's your crossover. <laughs> Spoiler Man versus Kidney Stabber, Dawn of Justice. Oh, God. Uh, um, I mean, I can't condone kidney stabbing on the podcast. Maybe if you got Nicolas Cage to play you, I'd be interested. Um, so I think I'm going to have to go for Spoiler Man and uh, Seb to be the victor in this week's pitch. Um, I'm sorry. Sorry not to have won that one. <laughs> what if it was Chris Hemsworth? Because, you know, he's got form. He, Chris Hemsworth has kidney stabbing form. No, he already he played no, James he has Hunt form already. For playing James Hunt. Oh, playing James Hunt. <laughs> oh, wow. I sense that didn't uh, help my chances any. <laughs> when that was the second time that something has gone completely over my head on this podcast, it's probably it is probably time to bring things to an end. <laughs> Okay, um, well, that is it for this week's show. Um, if you're enjoying the show, then please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And if you've already subscribed, then please leave us a rating or a review. Uh, just like someone actually has on iTunes in the last couple of weeks, this is Grizzly Worm, um, who uh, would like to hear us reviewing some old comic book movies too, like uh, the Hoff's Nick Fury or the old Captain Americas. Um, they're on our list. We have an extensive Excel spreadsheet with literally hundreds of things that our we li- could potentially list- discuss on the podcast. Our list goes back to 1941. Oh. Yes. Also, we have already done a film older than any of those <laughs> we films have. mentioned. We have. But, well, maybe not the older than the Captain America serials. Um, oh, no, but I thought he meant the 90s one, like the Matt Salinger and stuff. Anyway, Grizzly Worm left us five stars. Anyway, I'm have... not having a go at him, because thanks for the five we, we, we are very, very uh, grateful <laughs> for that five-star review. And if any more come in, we'll definitely read them out on the show. Uh, you can find more episodes of Cinematic Universe on cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com or as a Film Divider podcast at filmdivider.com. You can get in touch via Facebook on Twitter at cu underscore podcast. Or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. See you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. saying I'm responsible for this country's longest run of uninterrupted peace in 35 years. I'm not saying that from the ashes of captivity never has a phoenix metaphor been more personified. I'm not saying Uncle Sam can kick back on a lawn chair sipping on an iced tea because I haven't come across anyone man enough to go toe-to-toe with me on my best day. 
Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Iron Man 2. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com